Please remain standing as we read together God's good word, this text from 2 Kings chapter 5. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Aram, was a great man and in high favor with his master, because by him the Lord had given victory to Aram. The man, though a mighty warrior, suffered from leprosy. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and halted at the entrance of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go, wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman became angry and went away, saying, I thought that for me he would surely come out and stand and call in the name of the Lord his God, and would wave his hand over the spot and cure the leprosy. But his servants approached and said to him, Father, if the prophet had commanded you to do something difficult, would you not have done it? How much more when all he said to you was wash and be clean. So he went down and immersed himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. His flesh was restored like the flesh of a young boy, and he was clean. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. This is our third week of our sermon series, Christ for a Change. As we are in the month of January and in this new year, many of us make New Year's resolutions that don't necessarily stick. And so this month we've been asking ourselves, what would happen if we invited Christ into our life? If we, again, maybe for the first time or for the thousandth time, invited Christ to live in our lives, that when others look at us, they wouldn't see us, but they would see Christ living in us. Wouldn't that really create a change in our lives? This week, the question is, what feels wrong? But I, I want to ask you, have you ever had an underwhelming experience? I, I know we can have overwhelming experience, these, these situations in which we are just overcome with whatever emotion that it might be, whether it's joy, happiness, or even sorrow. But have you ever had an underwhelming experience, just something that was just incredibly disappointing? I know that I have. When I was uh, much younger, when I was a little kid, my sister had a car, and she had not just a car, but this bright purple Honda Accord. She loved this car, and, and because she loved this car, she loved any excuse to drive this car, including taking me wherever I wanted to go. It was so cool. I loved riding with my sister Shelby, especially because she broke the rules, right? She let me listen to those songs I really wasn't supposed to listen to, and, and sometimes she would speed and, and swerve in and out of traffic, my sister Shelby was cool. She was dangerous, but she was cool, right? And then one time when we were heading back home on the highway, my sister got pulled over by a police officer. It was, it was such an, an interesting event for me. I, I was riding the passenger seat, and, and I could kind of see the lights before my sister said anything. And, and she looked in a rearview mirror and said, oh, no, I'm, I'm getting pulled over. And I looked out of the, the, the rear window with such excitement because this was the first time that I had ever seen anybody get pulled over, right? This was, I was experiencing it just for the first time in my life. My parents were both really cautious drivers. Uh, none of my friend's family that I had driven with had ever gotten pulled over before. This was my first time. I didn't have anything to compare it to except for the fact that I had seen cops, right? I, I had seen cops, the, the, the reality show, and I, and I was pretty sure that this event was going to play out like that show, Right? I, I was ready for the cop to jump out of his car, to, to pull out his weapon, to yell for my sister to get out of the car, to, to put her hands over her head. I, I was ready for that whole thing to take place. Not that I really wanted it to happen to my sister. Well, okay, I wanted it to happen to my sister, but I was ready. Right? Can you imagine my disappointment when the cop walked up 
to her window, and my sister rolled it down. He said, do you know why I pulled you over? And she said, yes, I'm really sorry. And he said, well, just try to slow down, okay? And she said, okay. And he got back in his car and drove away. That was it? He didn't even pull out his gun or anything. Right? It was, it was so disappointing. I think there are so many events like that in our lives. Right? There are so many things that are disappointing, especially when we try to make change in our life. That can be really one of the most disappointing things. I don't know if you've ever had those events that maybe when you tried a new diet and, and you didn't see the result, results immediately and you become disappointed that, that you weren't losing weight as fast as you wanted. Or maybe when you started going to the gym, maybe for the first time, or, and, and, and you noticed that you, you weren't really getting as trend as you'd like to be, even though you've only been going a week. It can also happen in our spiritual lives as well. Right? We don't get that tingly sensation that we think we should feel when we pray. Or, or we don't get those epiphanies or that aha moment when we read scripture. Because we have it in our minds that the way this thing should go and when it doesn't fold out that way, well, we feel that we're doing it wrong. And so it's easy to quit these things whenever it feels wrong. Naaman, the person we read about just a little while ago, had many chances to do something that felt wrong. Naaman, we are told, was the commander of the army of Aram, which is Syria. He's the commander-in-chief of Syria. He, he has a very pronounced position in this country. And we learn that he is a very good commander-in-chief, that he's, he's very good at his job. In fact, he's conquered many other lands before in his lifetime. We read that he's a great warrior, but he has leprosy. He has leprosy. See, no matter how good of a warrior he is, no matter how many military strategies he knows, no matter how strong he might be, nothing he can do will stop this leprosy. Leprosy is, is a skin disease. It starts as a small white or discolored patch on your body and then begins to grow as it eats away your flesh. That this is a very common disease at this time and Naaman finds it and becomes very distressed. There's nothing that he has to get rid of this disease, only hope. And so Naaman, I'm sure, tries many different things to try to get rid of this disease, but nothing works. And it isn't until a slave girl from Israel, who happens to be in his home at this time, a slave girl from Israel tells him there's a prophet in Samaria that can heal you of your leprosy. Now, the reason this slave girl is from Israel is because Naaman has already conquered Israel, right? Their, their battles, their, their armies have already fought. Naaman has already won. These people are at odds. These people are enemies. And here the slave woman is telling him that he can go back to that country and there's a prophet there that will heal him of his disease. I'm sure that was the last thing that he wanted to do. So, Naaman, in a very dipl diplomatic way, has his king contact the king of Israel at this time so that the king might heal Naaman. I guess he figured that if there was a prophet in that town that could heal him, well, then surely the king of that town could heal me as well. 
And so Naaman presents himself to the king of Israel and, and asks to be healed of his leprosy. And the king panics and says, I, I, I can't do that. I, I don't know how to do that. And so the prophet Elisha calls for Naaman to come to his house. Now, Elisha is the prophet that succeeded Elijah, who was a prophet that denounced foreign gods, including the god of Aram. This is the last place that Naaman wants to go to be healed. But Naaman travels to this man's house, to Elisha's house, and, and when he gets there, he starts walking up the steps of the front door, and there he's met by a slave who stops him, doesn't let him come into the house, and says, Go wash in the Jordan seven times, and then you will be healed of your leprosy. Naaman has slowly been making allowances throughout this entire ordeal. He's, he's slowly humbled himself again and again throughout this entire event. First of all, he listened to the advice of a slave girl that was in his own house. And then he went to a country that he's already conquered, a, a country to which he is an enemy, and presented himself to that king, hoping that he might receive some kind of honor from that king. And then when he has to leave the court of that king, he thinks, well, at least I'll be treated nice by this prophet. And then he gets to the prophet's house, and he's met by a slave and isn't even allowed in his own house. And now he's told to go dip in the Jordan seven times. Naaman laments to his servants and says, I thought surely that, that this man was going to come out and perform this spectacular miracle. I thought that this man would have come out and, and, and would have waved his hand over my leprosy, would have called upon his God and would have cured me of my leprosy in this spectacular fashion. And his servants say to him, Father, if he would have told you to do something simple, would you not have done it? So Naaman agrees to go dip into the Jordan seven times. I wonder how Naaman felt that sixth time. Humbled by dip after dip into the Jordan River. The leprosy still not gone. I'm sure he thought this entire event was ludicrous, that this surely wasn't going to work. Until finally, the seventh time. And he finds out that he's been healed. Naaman is changed by this event. This event in which he practices something that feels so wrong. And what I mean by that, what I mean by the fact that it feels wrong is that it didn't soothe Naaman's ego. Right? I mean, he's the commander-in-chief of an entire country. And here he is dipping in the Jordan River seven times with no one around him. No prophet even came out and gave him this glory and honor. Naaman's ego wasn't, wasn't soothed, and so it felt wrong. I would venture to guess that many times the reason we stop doing something is because, well, it doesn't soothe our ego. Right, that many times we want that immediate gratification. We want it because we want it to make ourselves feel better. There's a, a writer named Charles Duhigg who writes the book, The Power of Habit. And he writes about this power of habit and says that our ego plays very much into our habits. He writes about this thing called a habit loop. We have an illustration of it here. 
He says, if, if you have a habit, any habit can be broken down into these three steps. Cue, routine, and reward. He uses the example of, of maybe at a certain time during your work, you eat a piece of cake. He says, say at 3.30, every day while you're at work, you get up from your desk and you go to the cafeteria to eat a piece of cake and talk with your colleagues. He says, well, the cue would be the time, right? That while you're sitting there, you don't need a clock in front of you. You kind of sense that it becomes time to do this thing. And so you get up each and every day and you walk to the cafeteria and, and you grab your piece of cake and you sit at the table with your colleagues and you talk while you eat your cake. He says any habit can be broken down into these three steps. The cue would be the time, right? 3.30, it's time to get up. And then your habit would be eating cake. And your reward, he says, is so important to notice because your reward is the only thing that makes it a habit. Because if you didn't have a reward for it, if, if there wasn't something that made you feel good after it, then you wouldn't keep doing it. Duig says that the reward in this situation is not necessarily eating cake, but maybe it's the feeling that you get that, that makes you feel good. Maybe it's the, the community with your colleagues that you have while you're eating cake. And Duig says that the golden rule of habit change, that when you're going to change something about your habits, is, is to keep the cue and the reward, but change the routine. He says, so if you wanted to stop eating cake, you would, well, at 3.30, you would get up and go to the cafeteria and maybe have a bottle of water or a healthier snack, but you would still converse with your colleagues and you would still try to recreate that good feeling. He says, this is how you change a habit. Now, if, if this is helpful for you, th- then I'm, I'm very glad. But the truth is, as I went through Duig's book, I kept thinking and wondering, is this Christian? I understand that Many times the reasons that we do things is because it makes us feel good. But if we are ever going to be true Christians, we have to put that out of our mind. There is no amount of work that we can do that will ever make us feel good enough to make us believe the fact that we deserve salvation. There is nothing in the world that we can do to make us believe that that we deserve the love and the grace that God gives us. God simply gives it to us as a free gift. Paul writes about it in this way in the book of Ephesians chapter 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works so that no one may boast. There's no amount of things that we can do that will ever make us feel good enough that we've deserved this thing. That when we talk about the disciplines, when we talk about those things that we ought to do, especially when we talk about prayer, when we talk about reading scripture, let's stop doing it for the feeling. And maybe we can start doing it for not how it makes us feel, but maybe how it might be seen by God. If you have your sermon notes with you, we've we've added an action step at the bottom. And, and Duig says that a way to change a habit is to make a plan. And, and I believe that he's right. And so he says, I, I, I want you to make this thing, have a blank for a cue, and say that when this happens, I will do this because it gives me this. I want to stop doing that. If you have that with you, I want, to, I want you to mark out me 
and writing God and others. Because that's why we're here. That's why we practice these things. Not how it makes us feel, but what it gives to God. Whether it's glory, whether it's honor, whether it's praise. That's the thing that we're called to give. Because the truth is, we've been taught our entire lives to do things for ourselves. Right? Since a very early age, we've been taught to be self-sustaining. And not only that, we've been taught that we're the most important people in the world. But one of the things that's hardest about becoming Christian is realizing that every other person is important. That not only are we important, but God is important. That, that salvation is important, not just for ourselves, but for each and every person that we meet. That our actions not only affect us, but our actions affect the entire world. That this is the Christian attitude we ought to have. A man by the name of Wesley Autry was traveling with his two girls one day, walking through the streets of New York City. And as he walked with them hand in hand, he decided to take the subway. And so he and his girls walked down the steps, got to the platform to wait for the subway car to come by. While they were standing there, they heard some commotion happening just a few ways down the platform. Autry saw a man that was having convulsions, and and as he was seizing, he fell out onto the tracks of the subway car. As Autry and others watched this happen, they knew they had to do something, but they couldn't figure out what. Autry got closer to the man as he started to hear the train coming over the tracks. At that moment, Autry jumped down onto the tracks, threw himself on top of the man, and they squeezed between the two tracks of the car as the subway car passed passed safely over them. The train came to a screeching halt, and those looking on didn't know if they had actually made it or not. Until after all the commotion had settled, Autry yelled, Tell my girls... I'm okay. This event happened in 2007. And I saw this on the news, and it was an amazing event. And it became even more amazing when Melissa and I went to New York this last year. And and I looked at the subway car, and I looked at the place in which they would have jumped in. And the the platform, between the two tracks, it's only a foot between the ground and the car that I'm sure there was a split second in which Autry wondered whether his actions would save their lives or not. Autry saved the man's life. Both of them got out of the entire event with only a few scrapes and bruises. That when they were pulled out, when Autry was met by a crowd of people, they asked him over and over again, why did you do it? Because the truth is, What he was doing looked wrong to others. That what he was doing, throwing himself on top of this man, that that putting himself in this kind of danger on these tracks, that whether he would live or die, this thing looked wrong. When he was asked why he did it, he said it was just the 
right thing to do. That when we ask ourselves why we do something, let's take ourselves out of the equation. Let's not ask ourselves how much better it makes us feel. That thing, Duick says, is impossible to do, but I, I believe that it might be possible. Duick says nobody does anything that doesn't make themselves feel good, and, and I want to challenge us to believe differently. Maybe I'm young, or, or maybe I'm just too stupid, but I believe that this thing that we can do is to do everything in our lives for others. That we can live our lives for others and for God. That we can spend our entire life giving honor and glory and praise to God. Not because it makes us feel good. Because as soon as that feeling leaves us, then we stop doing it. But if we spend our entire lives doing this very thing, then I think maybe, just maybe, we can not only change ourselves, but we can change the world. That's what I believe in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we love you. God, we love you, but we know it's hard to follow. It's hard to follow, Lord, because many times it doesn't always feel good. God, we pray that you would pour your spirit out upon us at this time, that you would strengthen us, Lord, that you would live in us, that you would give us the power to do things, not just for ourselves, but for others and for you. That we would spend our entire lives, Lord, living as if you cared for your world. God, that we would give honor and praise and glory to you, for you are worth it. God, we thank you. We thank you for our lives. We thank you for this world. We thank you that we have this opportunity to participate in your church. Lord, we pray that you would bless us, that you would give us the power to do this very thing. God, that we would have the power to live as Christ lived, to teach as Christ taught, and to be like him. And we remember him as we pray the prayer that he taught his disciples, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.